So I had a conversation with someone recently who was working with uh, one of their uh, teams, and this team had uh, what they called a monolith, and they wanted to break the monolith up. Now, what people usually be by, mean by a monolith is a large chunk of code with many subsystems. And in order to release any piece of that subsystem, you have to release all of it. So you have a large, uh, a large war ear file or just some gigantic release. You're not at runtime coupling together, uh, the systems and configuring them to work together, uh, in, in a looser way. Now, the opposite of monolith is kind of how the internet works, right? So if you're writing an application that uses a bunch of internet services like checks the weather, or uh, purchases something for you, or like here, I'm, uh, right now, if you're listening to the audio, you can't see it, but I'm using this little camera that live streams to Facebook. Every time Facebook changes their live stream API, it's not like the Mevo thing needs to be updated. And, and every time that the Mevo thing changes, it's not like uh, Facebook needs to be updated. Now, of course, if either in changes something that's incompatible, then you have problems. That falls under the category of don't do that. But a lot of what's in uh, microservices think where you can run multiple versions of an application, so you have ways of gracefully failing back, goes to kind of addressing these incompatibilities in a way that like Java, for example, is a strongly typed thing back when I used to code was not so good at. But anyhow, let's get back to this thing where you're not addressing what I would call a piece of technical debt. Uh, that is, there are lots of fancy definitions of technical debt. Well, let's just call it bad code. You've got some bad code that isn't user-facing that you need to do something about. It might be re-architecting uh, the way you do something, or it could be uh, something totally, totally different. Like, we need to write some more tests for this, and we're definitely afraid to change anything because we don't have tests, or the way that we generate a PDF is terrible. Now, in this instance, the way that you rate code as being bad, I mean, I guess you could have code that the user doesn't like how it operates, which is definitely uh, probably the primary way that it's bad, but... Essentially, in order to make changes to this code, it takes you way longer than you think it should. It's slowing down your velocity to keep having this bad code. Let me rephrase that a little bit. You have bad code, and because you are not fixing it, it means that you can get you you get fewer features out of the door in each release. So it's making you worse at getting uh, features out of the door. So you might take this to management and say, we've got this bad code. We need to do something about it. And a common response is no. And that's what this person was talking with me about. Uh, so, you know, instead, uh, you know, instead of just balking at it and thinking that they're terrible, I think as always, it's good to sort of understand what's happening. And I think there's kind of three reasons, at least, there's probably more that someone would say no to recoding something. The first is they simply don't believe you. They don't trust that you as the technical team, the, the product team, developers, whatever, are really speaking the truth, either just out of ignorance on your part, like you think you need to change it, but you actually don't, it'll be fine. Or they might think that you're falling prey to a common old uh, anti-pattern, which is just like gratuitous recoding of things, right? Like uh, rewriting stuff and refactoring. And anytime you have a re in front of it, like it just seems uh, really cool, but it usually is a bad idea uh, to do it without knowing what you're going in for, right? Like uh, you go sort of rip up the roads and next thing you know, there's something else you need to find and on and on. And it ends up being worse than if you had ignored the problem because it wasn't really broken in the first place. So the second reason that people may not want you to do it is because they're kind of like running out the clock, right? So they don't actually think that uh, you need to address this because the project might end. This is especially pernicious when it's an outsourcing thing, right? Like they don't need to worry about the long-term viability of, of the product or the, the changeability of it. They just have a date to hit. And once that date is hit, they're out. 
and they're not looking for renewal or whatever, or maybe the person's looking for a new job, or maybe legitimately they don't need to do anything about it. Uh, there's not sort of a dressing of the bad code that you have. I mean, in the, uh, in nowadays it's still the case, but there, in the old days where you would ship CDs, there was always the infamous case that people would ship with bugs, right? They needed to ship and they wouldn't address all the bugs. And obviously you still do this. But that kind of is the same notion of like, uh, we are deciding uh, that we need to ship it. And so therefore, we're going to keep the bugs in. Now, the other reason that this might come up, I think, is that the people making the decision might think there's a different way to fix the problem. So they might think the problem is real, but they might think that it actually like there's a different way of addressing it. Like there might be some cool software you can install. Like uh, this is probably still the case in many instances, but it used to be that if you hadn't virtualized an application, uh, a lot of your performance problems and management problems and maybe even updating problems could be taken care of by putting it in a VM or a series of VMs and managing that way instead of it being physically installed. It would certainly address installer problems that you had. You could just ship VMs around. I mean, again, it's not like a panacea, but... And there's also things like, you know, um, kind of faking out memory uh, sort of systems that you memory allocation that you have to speed things up, all sorts of stuff where you can kind of put in some software that does something cool that kind of fakes out the system and, and addresses the problem. But let's say it's, it's uh, you know, I mean, not all some of these three things are invalid, like people not believing you, uh, assuming it's true. But, you know, let's say that nonetheless, you go through this analysis uh, and you decide that that you're going to just ignore it. You're not going to fix it. Well, in that case, I think the important thing is to get however it is you record that decisions were made and why, which hopefully you do, you should get you should sit down and have the people making the decision document uh, the fact, so to speak, if you will, that they decided not to address this bad code. And because they wanted to achieve whatever else it was, like if they believed that addressing that bad code would slow down uh, doing features in another part of the system or whatever. There must be some reason they didn't have cost for it. Just document it and move on. Like that becomes an operating principle that you have is we're just going to operate with the bad code. It's kind of like I'm terrible at my car. And, uh, you know, I, I drove my car around, I found out with just like terrible tires on it. And I often have it go like without oil changes, but like, I don't really care. Right. Like, and I'm willing, I'm taking on that risk. And I kind of know that like if you drive around with an expired inspection sticker, which, which I would never, of course, do, but you sort of just acknowledge that these things are there so that when the time comes, you can revisit it and, and know about it. Now, another thing, in addition to that is you might want to actually document in a more, more than kind of subjective, quantitative, a qualitative way what's happening here. So what I would go back to here is, is. Uh, look at the velocity that you have in each release and look over time and see if it's sped up or slowed down. And if you're lucky enough, you can narrow it down to different subsystems you have. So if you don't have enough testing in one system, uh, as initially you could get a lot of features out quickly, but then because you don't have testing, you're very leery and cautious about changing things and you put less features out or more bugs emerge as, as you release things because you didn't have enough testing. So somehow figure out addressing the point that because we haven't addressed this bad code, we can't move fast enough. Right. And, and that's kind of the origin of, of this question is like we have we have all this bad code and people won't let us change things, but they want to speed up. So you're in this this fix where you need to you need to address the bad code in order to speed things up. So do some studying about what your velocity is and kind of show that you used to be able to deliver at a rate that you liked. But because you haven't been addressing the bad code, the technical debt or breaking up the monolith, as the case may be, or whatever your issue is, you can no longer release as many features as you used to now. Proving causation in that is annoying and difficult and doesn't always work, but at least it's something. So 
you know, the other issue is that you probably, uh, if you're in a situation where people don't trust uh, your, your developers to say you need to address something, you may, maybe have spotty data anyways. Uh, so you, this relies on having historic data or a way of extracting that data uh, quickly um, at the end. Now, as with all stuff like this, like if you're spending all your time proving that you should be coding instead of coding, there's something going terribly wrong uh, that, that that's that's really just just no good. And, and that kind of gets to the end point. I mean, so much of improving the way that organizations do software that I encounter kind of rests on this last point, which is you need to make sure that there's trust between management and the product teams or the development or vice versa or whatever, right? Like there has to be this amount of trust that when one, on, on the one side, when the, the developers say they need to address the bad code, that it actually needs to be addressed, that people aren't mistrusting them. So however it is that develop, development should always be thinking about how can we prove our credibility and trust, right? And that's a lot of what Velocity is about from the old Scrum days is we start calibrating and building up that when we say we can do three stories or three features or five features or whatever per iteration, we might have gotten it wrong the first several times, but eventually we calibrate and we have a good sense of how much we can actually do so we're reliable. We reliably say what we can do. And also all sorts of other things like that that shows that you're a reliable development team. Now, on the other end, management also needs to get the trust of developers uh, of the product teams. One, to tell them these things, right, to tell them news they don't want to hear. So, you know, they need to welcome hearing bad news and also, uh, you know, ways of solving it. And they also need to build up uh, the trust of the development team to actually listen to them and trust them. So, you know, this is a tricky role for management, but they need to start doing, uh, you know, in early, hopefully in the early releases, do sort of exercises where they allow developers to do things and and uh, and essentially don't put them in this kind of learned helplessness phase, right? Like I've seen lots of development teams where management didn't build up and cultivate a trust of management from the product teams. And therefore, the product teams just kind of like weren't very assertive, didn't tell them things, and just did exactly what management was telling them to do. So in that instance, right, in, in, in each instance where you're, you're looking to build up trust, you're really losing the ability of, of developers to guide the product and use them, use, use their full potential of what they know. And management is just sort of kind of like almost willfully flying blind because they just have set up a product team that uh, doesn't really tell them the truth and doesn't, you know, if, if, if you don't trust them when your developers come to you and say that you have bad code, uh, that you need to stop, uh, doing sort of feature releases to address. Then as a manager, you really need to think about if what, if you don't trust them, how you've gotten to that point where you don't trust your development team and how you can start addressing it. And, and I think again, as, as I'm always returning to, that's really management's, uh, responsibility. And, and, you know, a lot of this positive change begins and ends with management. So. This has been another little uh, Kote monologue, if you will, uh, as part of the, the Kote Show podcast. If you go to Kote.show, it's not no com or anything, you can find links to subscribe to it and you can leave in comments. And, you know, we've got past episodes on pair programming uh, and other things like that. Um, and there's also, you know, in that feed, I have occasional interviews with people. You can find some interviews with people from Allstate and Express Scripts and even some some rando sort of other uh, recordings that I have. So uh, if you've enjoyed it, uh, leave a comment or subscribe to the podcast, and we'll see you next time.